HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Roberts from the Resnick Center for Food Law and Policy at the UCLA Law School, as well as Marlene Schwartz from the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at the University of Connecticut about food marketing to children. As you may know, UCLA Law held a conference on marketing to children back in October, and we wanted to provide a platform to revisit these discussions for those who couldn't make it to the conference in person. But before we dig into today's topic, I want to talk a little bit about last week's elections. The results, I believe, were devastating, not only for our country as a whole, but as it relates to this show, for the immense progress we have made in the past decade on food policy and environmental issues. So if food issues are of importance to you, it bears repeating that now is the time to act. As a consumer, you can vote with your fork, and as a constituent, you can lobby your elected officials to prioritize these issues. Food issues will continue to be deprioritized by electeds unless you make your voice heard. Our hope is that this show will prepare you for some of those conversations and empower you to find your voice. Also, before I get off my soapbox, there's one more thing that's worth mentioning, and that is the hugely impactful role that media can play in the democratic process. On this show, for example, we clearly have a point of view. And if you've been listening, we're big Hillary supporters, which we're really transparent about. Hashtag still with her. Hashtag she got more votes. But but the point of Eating Matters is to provide a platform for our guests, the real subject matter experts, to discuss the issues that they have extensive experience with. All of this is to say that now, more so than ever, it's incredibly important to support outlets that are transparent and can support their reportings or claims with evidence-based research. To that end, we ask you to continue supporting not only this show, but all credible fact-based outlets on both sides of the aisle, because we believe that facts still matter. And with that, I want to bring in fellow HRC supporter, Nasty Woman, and my associate producer, Taylor Lenzette, to discuss how last week's elections can and might affect food policy. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Jenna. How you doing? You know. Not good? Not good. Um, well, you know. It was, it was a long week. Yeah, it was a long week. Yeah. Um, okay, so lots to talk about. Let's dive right in. Yeah. Um, so, you know... For the sake of today, we're going to keep things short for the new segment because we have so much to cover. Um, but first up, really want to talk about soda policy because I had a big day on Election Day. So voters in Boulder, uh, Colorado, San Francisco, Oakland, and Albany approved uh, taxes on soda. So San Francisco and Oakland and Albany approved a penny per ounce tax, and Boulder approved a two cent per ounce tax. That is 
awesome news. It was like one of the bright spots from last week. Um, yeah. Worth mentioning that Bloomberg pay, play, played a big role in helping these campaigns um, and also kind of in the fallout from Philadelphia, um, we are starting to see more cities fall um, in terms of soda taxes. Yeah, totally. Really good things. Also worth noting that the proposed minimum wage increases passed um, in each state that it was on the ballot, including Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and Washington. Yeah, which is great news. Um, To move away from the great news, there were some depressing updates. Let's get sad. Um, So Trump's choices for cabinet positions. Um, (laughs) Rough. First up. Uh, Michael Torrey is leading his USDA transition, and Torrey is a big-time ag lobbyist for Dean Foods, American Beverage Association. He worked in the Bush administration um, all around, definitely sort of will probably be pushing the USDA farther from um, the... Where it should be. Yeah, and what what Obama did in terms of the the really important initiatives of New York Farm and New Food and the local food, uh, local school food program. so that's that's, that's a bummer, <laughs> but it, it gets worse. Uh, <laughs> next up, the EPA. Uh, so no surprise here, President-elect Donald Trump is not a huge fan of the EPA, and he has uh, vowed to roll back Obama's efforts on greenhouse gas emission reductions, regulations on oil and coal, um, and he has tapped the one and only Myron Ebel, um, who is a Washington legacy and a climate change denier. Uh, all around is an anti-environmental conservationist. Uh, you know, his he's always argued for opening up more federal lands for logging, oil and gas exploration, and has um, aggressively urged the Senate to vote to reject um, the international climate change um, pact from Paris last year. Probably worth noting that um, he's not a scientist. No, no, no. <laughs> Why do you want a scientist to run the, the EPA and also make decisions on climate change? Um, so that's cool. Okay, so also Trump's, um, like you said, he's looking to get out of the Paris Accord, which was a hugely important landmark yeah. making international agreement and it and it you know the point of it is to it seeks to ri- limit raising rising temperatures that have been linked to increasing economic damage from desertification extinctions of animals plants heat waves floods and rising sea levels yeah um and then the rest of the world is really expecting we uphold our position on this yeah i mean i think there have been lots of developing countries and island nations that are sort of right everyone's getting nervous yeah. um, because of how much talk there is about pulling out. Yep. Um, and, you know, just generally in terms of the policies that we've seen President-elect Donald Trump already talk about, um, a lot of the progressive advancements that it, the Obama administration has made, which um, if you listen to last week's episode with Sam Cass, um, we discussed a lot of that. A lot of those policies are being sort of, they're going to be dismantled or they're at risk of being dismantled. Yeah. So this includes school lunches, new nutrition labels, the Let's Move and educational campaigns that uh, Michelle Obama was an advocate of, um, voluntary reduction programs from the FDA. I mean, all of these things are in jeopardy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And um, I, I mean, there was that comment about the food police also that Trump made, Yeah. Right? Yeah. So in, in uh, September, Trump suggested that he would eliminate the FDA, a.k.a. the food police. <laughs> Because they govern too much. <laughs> like like the safety of our food system, yeah. our food supply. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, well, well, the last thing I'll say, too, is um, I'm particularly worried about um, the platform that Republicans have really championed, which is to break um, SNAP benefits from the farm bill, which yeah. would make the program extremely vulnerable to budget cuts. Um, and this is something that Republicans really have been advocating for a while, um, and Obama obviously has... Push back on. Um, yeah, has pushed back on. Hasn't um, the speaker, uh, Paul Ryan, been super adamant about, about yeah. this particular yeah. um, idea? He has. Well, it's a good thing that Republicans control everything now. <laughs> so, okay, on that depressing note, we're going to leave it there for the news today. More coverage on the election fallout is definitely to come coming your way. Um, and as always, if you have thoughts on the issues we discussed uh, today or ideas for topics that you want us to cover moving forward, uh, drop us a line at eating matters at heritageradionetwork.org or tweet to us at eat matters hrn
Okay, now for a feature story today, um, we'll be talking about the extent to which food marketing exists and the effects that it has on children in particular. Joining us first on the line to introduce this topic is Michael Roberts, Executive Director of the Resnick Center for Food Law and Policy, who recently hosted a conference in partnership with Harvard on this very subject. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back with you again. Thank you. Great to have you on. Um, Okay, can you give us an overview on the conference and how it relates to the work you're doing at the Resnick Center? Uh, Sure. Uh, The conference uh, addressed uh, food marketing to children, um, Mm -hmm. and it approached this issue in an interdisciplinary way, which is consistent with the way we run our program. Mm -hmm. So we had three panels. The first panel uh, was uh, looked at the science uh, and the science on the effects of marketing on youth, both from a public health and a cognitive perspective. We then had a second panel Mm -hmm. um, that was focused on the law, and that's the constitutional regulatory frameworks that govern marketing to children. And then third, we had uh, a policy and strategy panel, Mm -hmm. and this panel followed up uh, both the science and law and discussed how government business and non-government sectors uh, have responded or try to respond to concerns about the marketing of unhealthy food and beverages to children. And uh, we were fortunate also to have uh, retired Senator Tom Harkin deliver a keynote speech and then a wonderful talk that was given by Kelly uh, Brownell, who's the dean of the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke, on these three different approaches, uh, science, law, and policy, and how they interrelate with each other. And and why did you decide to focus on uh, this year's event uh, on marketing to children in particular? Well, first of all, I think there's a, a big problem um, mm-hmm. in terms of ch- uh, ch- uh, obesity with children and the exposure that they have to food marketing. It, and. You know, it's been uh, some many years uh, since a conference like this was held at a law school, mm-hmm. and and at that time, uh, and when the uh, FTC and other agencies were involved in this, most of the marketing was done through television. And I think a good chunk of the marketing is still done through television, but the facts have changed. We now have social media, we have ga- uh, games, we have all different types of marketing uh, to children of food, uh, and um, so I think the the, the facts and circumstances have changed, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think the science has changed, too. Uh, We're starting to now, uh, uh, both in terms of uh, addiction, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as um, social science and behavioral science uh, and how this affects children has evolved and changed over the time, so we have better information. Uh, so, hence, we should be making uh, more informed decisions about law and policy. So, I think it's just about time. Uh, yeah. and, but I think the timing is also good in terms of, of, of how far the science has moved since we first examined these issues some decade ago when uh, there were a number of conferences addressing this issue. Um, so, we're going to get into some of the details uh, with Marlene in a few minutes, but what were, what were some of the kind of key takeaways from the, you know, the various conversations that you had that you can share with us? Well, I think one key takeaway is, is how complicated this issue is. Um, and, you know, we've got, and I think that's why it's important to square the law with the science and the policy with the science. Um, you know, when we deal with issues of the First Amendment, for example, and regulating speech, commercial speech, um, much of that analysis depends on the interest of the state. Mm-hmm. And and looking for other creative solutions uh, also depends on our ability to make a difference. And so I think bringing together these different um, disciplines uh, was really important, and that seemed to be, that was a, a comment that was made widely, um, at least to us, uh, during and after the conference. And so the, the, the problems are complicated, but, but, but there are solutions, and we just have to be able to gather the political will to do them, and that's one of the reasons our last panel was so important on policy. And, um, and I think that, uh, at least amongst my students, um, it was they would probably be the least surprised at how pervasive advertising is amongst children. Yeah. But even the students there were, were surprised at the outreach and social media on, um, in, uh, you know, the extent to which children are exposed to uh, advertising by uh, the food industry. It's a, it's a whole other 
ball game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so for those who want to know more, um, you guys did record the or you videoed a lot of the the conference. Is that right? We did video it, and then also uh, C-SPAN videoed uh, parts of it. We're not exactly sure what C-SPAN is going to do with this. Mm-hmm. We know they're going to uh, show it, um, but to to which. How much they show and when they're going to show, we don't quite know yet, but we'll post that on our website when we find out. I want to thank you so much, Michael, for coming on and giving us that um, that overview and introduction. I think that the, I mean, I might be a little bit biased, but um, I love the work coming out of Res- the Resnick Center, and um, I'm, I'm so glad you had, the, had this conference and that we could um, continue this, the discussion today. Great, and thank you for all the good work you do. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Have, have Thanks. a great day. Bye-bye. All right, next up, we have Marlene Schwartz um, joining us. Marlene's the current director of the Red Center for Food Policy and Obesity at the University of Connecticut. Uh, she is a Ph.D. from Yale in psychology um, and has focused her research on how home environments, school landscapes, neighborhoods, and the media shape eating attitudes and behaviors of children. She participated in one of these three featured panels during the UCLA Harvard conference we just talked about, and I'm so pleased that it has brought her back to our show. Hi, Marlene. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, okay, so let's start with the basics. What are the various marketing channels that companies use to target kids? Well, they use television. That's probably the main strategy that they use. Um, But they also can use digital marketing through social media or online websites. And then they also use the packaging that you see when you're in the store. So a lot of different ways to to get at kids. That's right. (laughs) And what are the most kind of common marketing tactics that that are used today? In terms of like, you know, cartoon characters or, you know, how do they actually, how does this get um, enacted? Yes. So it's very popular to have characters. Um, Sometimes it's cartoon characters that are developed specifically for the product, sort of like Tony the Tiger. Mm -hmm. But they also can use characters that are from the entertainment industry. So Disney princesses or other characters that are in movies. Um. And, and and this has proven to be particularly effective. Is is there one particular age group that you would say is more affected by marketing when we talk about kids? Like what? Well, yeah. What, I, and what is I the think, age group that we're when we talk about kids? What age are are we really referencing? Sure. So the kids tend to be divided into three different categories. There's um, under six years old is really considered. Small children who pretty much everyone agrees nobody should be marketing directly to them because they are unable to really understand persuasive intent. So it's sort of inherently deceptive to market to children that small. Then you have um, 7 to 11-year-olds, which is a group that we study and is a group that the industry agrees should be protected. And then you have... 12 and up, where you're looking at, you know, sort of adolescent, you know, late tween adolescents, and there's a lot of debate as to whether or not they should be protected from marketing. And how uh, how long have companies specifically targeted these different age groups, right? Is this something that has intensified in um, recent history with the rise of television or social media? I think that uh, companies have been advertising to children. I mean, I can remember tricks were for kids, you know, back in the 70s, watching Saturday morning cartoons. But I think things really exploded when uh, television changed from essentially three big networks to lots and lots of cable stations, including stations like Nickelodeon, Disney, Cartoon Network, stations that are really um, 24-7 with... Uh, programming that is attractive to children. Um, okay, I want to ask kind of one of the most basic questions when when thinking about this topic, and I I want to know: Do these efforts really work, um, and and why? So, like, what specifically happens to the consumers or the kids when they see an ad? 
So the, the short answer is yes, advertising definitely works. And there's both the science but also the common sense answer, which is why in the world would the industry spend this kind of money right, on right. something that didn't work? So you almost don't have to prove it any other way. Yeah. Um, what tends to happen with advertising, particularly advertising to children, you're not making a case, you know, for a child to sort of weigh the costs and benefits of different products and intellectually decide to go with one brand over another. It's really about forming a relationship with the child, and that's why characters are so popular, because the child already feels an affinity towards, you know, SpongeBob or mm-hmm. towards, you know, a Star Wars character. And you're taking that relationship and then connecting it to a particular food product. And so that's really, I think, how it works is it makes the child feel like that product is, you know, kind of connected to them in the way they feel connected to the character. So what you're, it seems like you're saying that it elicits a very emotional response. Absolutely. I think that the way marketing works for all of us, including us adults, is it's emotional. It's, you know, oftentimes the ads that are most effective are ones that really pull on our emotions. They, you know, either show people that, you know, are sort of aspirational, you know, living in a way or, you know, sort of driving a car or wearing clothes that we think, you know, looks like something we would like to aspire to. Um, And it really isn't so much about the technical reality. It's more about how it makes us feel when we think about that brand. And I guess this is another sort of basic question, but how has um, your research shown how, uh, you know, these marketing campaigns, when targeted to children that interact with parents, are, like, has any research shown that children are then sort of going to their parents and parents are also sort of swayed in this way? Um, Or what is the role of parents um, in sort of supporting um, their children when they do see their favorite characters um, and it is that emotional connection? um, Yeah, I think that um, part of the reason why the companies market directly to children who, you know, they will often point out are not the ones making the purchasing Mm -hmm. decision, they're Mm -hmm. not the ones carrying the credit cards, Mm -hmm. is because they know how effective children are at convincing their parents to buy something, and they even have a term for it. It's called pester power. (laughs) And so the, you know, the ads are really designed to maximize the the child as advocate for purchasing Mm -hmm. the product. You know, we've done quite a bit of research with parents, and oftentimes parents feel like, you know, buying something branded like that that their child likes, especially something that's fairly inexpensive, like a snack or a a fast food meal, is is an easy way to make their child happy. And I think parents naturally want their children to be happy, and especially if a parent feels like they can't afford maybe some really expensive item that their child wants, they at least feel like they can make their child happy in the short term with something like that. With like that, right? And is marketing as effective when featuring healthy products, um, right? So like produce or broccoli. <laughs> See, that is a really, really good question, and that actually has been the source of quite a bit of interest in recent years and some research. So we did do one study where we had uh, children come in and they played advert games, which are online games that feature um, foods, and they mostly are unhealthy foods, but we were able to find one from Dole that featured fruit, and we randomly assigned the children to play either the unhealthy advert game or the healthy one, and then we provided them an array of snacks, and what we found was that the children who played the healthy advert game actually ate more of the fruits and vegetables and less of the sweet and salty snacks that we provided, and the children who played the unhealthy game did just the opposite. So that would suggest that you really can um, increase consumption of healthy foods through some of the same channels that um, the companies use to market the unhealthy foods. There's just not a big marketing budget for (laughs) carrots. That's the exact problem. The carrot lobby. The carrot lobby. That the produce isn't generally made by these massive, you know, companies that have huge budgets for marketing. They're often, you know, they're they're, you know, smaller companies, they're local companies, and so that's where I feel like there's a real um, sort of unfair playing field because yeah. the products we really want our kids to eat more of aren't being, you know, marketed with the same power as the ones that we're trying to limit. 
How has the landscape changed in recent years with the rise of digital platforms, and what are some of the kind of repercussions of of that? Um, things really have changed. I, you know, when we first started doing this research, it was very clear that television was still the absolute sort of centerpiece of any marketing campaign and really the most important thing to track. But in just the last few years, we have seen a shift, and it seems like companies are putting more of their money into digital marketing. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the most concerning things is they're using a lot of social media. So yeah. things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. And the problem is that television is something where parents hopefully have some control, you know, of being yeah. able to say, turn the TV off or, you know, or sit down and watch it with their child. But our society has evolved in such a way that a lot of kids have cell phones with them all the time, Mm -hmm. often when they're not with their parents. In fact, almost especially when they're not with their parents because their parents want them to have their phones so they can call them and make sure they're okay. And so a lot of this marketing is happening outside of the awareness of the parents. And I think many parents simply don't know how much their child's being exposed to. And we talked um, in advance about Snapchat, for instance. Can you kind of Tell us uh, a little bit about why that platform, which is certainly rising, increasing in popularity, um, is particularly effective and potentially dangerous. Well, I think it's incredibly popular, as you said, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I understand they've done is they've created an opportunity for brands to create the geotag where, you know, a little sort of background shows up or a little... A symbol shows up when you're taking the picture, and those can be connected to a particular restaurant, a particular product um, that's nearby. And so it's something that, again, it happens quickly. Parents are not paying any attention, but the kids are seeing it, and it's sort of constantly exposing them to the brand and to the logo. That's that's crazy. The, the geotagging is... is um... Uh, very um, uh, challenging. And, you know, it, it seems to me, and this is just my kind of my observation, but that younger generations are interacting with brands much differently um, than they have before. Like, they're much more engaged um, in kind of communicating with brands via via digital platforms, and they seem more invested in them. I, I'm wondering if this is something that you've found to be true in your research, and if so, has it influenced your efforts at all to reduce exposure? It's definitely true. I mean, the difference between, you know, sort of passively seeing a commercial or hearing a radio ad versus seeing something in your sort of social media where it's connected to your friends, either your friends have forwarded it to you or you can see that your friends like whatever the brand is. Again, it makes it much, much more personal. And then we noticed something fascinating when we were looking actually at energy drinks, and this is for older um, kids, so these were college age, and we noticed this phenomenon on Twitter where um, if a, it seemed like if a college student tweeted, you know, they were up studying or they were working hard, that they would sometimes get a tweet back from an energy drink company. <laughs> and so it was this remarkably personal connection. Yeah. It really seemed like um, some of these companies, I, I guess they hire people to sit and do oh, this, yeah, they for would, sure do. you know, would sit there and tweet back like long night studying, try yeah. Red Bull. And yeah. it was really unbelievable to us that they were being so clearly directive and personal with their target. Wow. I never got any of those tweets in college. I know. I probably <laughs> would have been very susceptible to those. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have you have you done any research on the potential long term effects uh, in eating in terms of eating preferences and behaviors from these marketing efforts? We have done some studies. Um, we've, we've definitely documented the short term effects where exposure to ads does lead to more consumption immediately afterwards of the unhealthy foods. But we've also done research using um, you know bigger national data sets, and we've been able to connect data on exposure to particular types of marketing, whether it's fast food or sugar-sweetened beverages, and higher rates of consuming those products. 
Um, we're going to actually take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, um, I want to talk more about industry's role in the extent to which um, they're marketing to, to kids and um, efforts underway to reduce exposure. Stay tuned. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Rectech, and this track is called Field Trip World. Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sourchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sourchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sourchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Marlene Schwartz, Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, about the effects of marketing to children. Marlene, what has industry's response been to the work in recent years um, to reduce marketing efforts to kids? Well, the industry is very concerned about government regulation, and so in an effort to prevent that, they put together a self-regulation um, effort called CFBAI, which is the Children's Food and Beverage Advertising Initiative. And uh, it started a few years ago, and most of the big um, companies that market to children have joined this initiative, and they have pledged to improve the mix of foods that are marketed to children. Um, so, so does that in- include, like, f- focus on some of their healthier products? Well, yes. So um, In theory. what they do is they, they first they define children, mm-hmm. and the way they define children is um, up to age 11. And then... Um, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was 12. No. They actually, it's a little deceptive. The way they say it is children under 12. <laughs> so you sort huh. of hear the 12, which I yeah. think makes you think it's 12, but no, it's actually under 12. So it only goes up to 11. Um, And then they have a very specific definition of what's considered child-targeted marketing. And it gets sort of technical, but it has to do with um, making sure that the percentage of children 11 and under who are in the audience is um, 35% more. And that kind of sounds reasonable at first, but when you really start to look at the data, it, it actually really only covers the shows that we think of as really for very small children. A lot of the shows that kids are watching are not shows that 35% or more of the audience is made up of children 11 and under. So we've done research showing that about half of what kids see is not on child-directed media. (laughs) So they're really missing um, a lot of, you know, the, um, the kids are not being protected because the shows they're watching don't fall under this definition. What are examples of some of those shows that, don't, that you would think would fall under the directive but don't actually? Well, one of the shows um, that we identify is Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> so that's a show that's obviously very popular. Yeah. Um, and most people would definitely agree <laughs> as a kid's kind of show. Yeah. Um, but because so many people watch it who are older the actual percentages don't work out for it to be in that definition. So, um, and, then, and then a lot of the Nickelodeon shows that, you know, tend to appeal to more, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, you're just not going to have that big of a portion of the audience be the much younger kids. 
considering that, um, where do you think the initiative has had the biggest impact? Well, I think that it has had an impact on um, the exposure of the very, very youngest children um, because I think they really don't watch the, the more tween shows. But I think that, you know, the older sort of late elementary school and certainly middle school, the, it really hasn't improved things very much at all in terms of the exposure that those children have. Um, a few years ago, uh, Disney, as you know, became the first major media company to introduce new standards for food advertising and programming targeting kids. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this commitment and the effect you think it has had, uh, if any? Sure. So Disney did sort of come forward as a company and set standards of what the nutrition had to be for a product in order for them to have their, you know, Disney-branded characters on the product. And I thought that was really terrific. I mean, that was sort of a different way of looking at it. Instead of holding the food companies responsible, it's mm-hmm. holding the entertainment companies responsible. And who, I think who make a lot of great. money. Sorry to cut you off, but they make a ton of money from, obviously, from ads. It's how most of them make their money. So it even seems like it's an even bigger deal. Yes, and yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting with Disney because of a lot of those companies, I think Disney really, their brand is all about families and trust. You know, they really need parents to trust their brand. Um, and they are seen as this sort of safe place. And so I think probably they did a cost-benefit analysis and decided that they were at a bigger risk of having their characters on products that parents clearly would say are not healthy products and they risk they would risk losing that parent trust. Um, was there pushback from any of the food companies on this? Not that I know of. Um, I haven't heard anything about that. So my guess is that um, you know overall the perception was quite positive. Um, in, in bringing it back to kind of bringing in other marketing channels, I know that a pain point for a lot of parents is getting through the checkout lane at stores without being hounded. You know, we talked about the pester power. Um, and, and a lot of times kids are hounding their parents to buy candy and junk that's typically placed at the point of sale. Um, have there been any efforts to eliminate these kinds of products in those areas? Um, and if so... What would, you know, if not, what would be an effective strategy that, in your opinion, uh, could be pursued? I know that there have been efforts to try to convince um, grocery stores or other stores to have checkout lanes that only feature healthy products. I don't know how successful they've been. I do know that in um, one of the grocery chains here in Connecticut, they do have a sort of family-friendly aisle. And if you go through that, it doesn't have the typical candy. But it does feel like, um, you know, it's it's just one. It's not all of them. And it really does feel like it's not as effective as something more where it would really be about limiting the amount of packaging that is appealing to children in the grocery store in the first place. What are some other efforts that are either underway or that you would like to see happen? Like you you, you mentioned packaging just now. Um, Would that be something that you think we should focus our area efforts on? I mean, it really would be helpful (laughs) if the the packaging were toned down and it was easier for parents to go to the grocery store with young children and not feel like it was a constant battle between them and SpongeBob. Um, Another thing that would be helpful is if the way that the products were physically arranged in the grocery store was not putting, you know, these child-targeted brands right in front of their eye level Um, You know, having them on much higher shelves or something like that, I think, would be helpful. So those are, you know, those are a couple of examples that I think would just make it easier for parents. Um, One follow-up to uh, the Disney example. Does does their commitment include advertising um, or use of their characters on food packaging? Or is it just advertising, like on TV? No, I think my understanding is that it does include... Um, the use of their characters on packages. So I think that's one of the things that they, you know, were saying that they wanted their, you know, their characters not to be associated with unhealthy products. 
Okay. Um, the other thing Disney has done is they've actually changed the default of the foods that are in their parks for children. So they have sort of their kids' meals. And instead of it coming automatically with soda and french fries like you have in a lot of restaurants, they actually default to water, juice, or milk, and then a fruit or a vegetable on the side. And you have to ask to actually get the fries or the soda. So I was pretty impressed with that when I was at the park. And that has... And that has shown to be uh, to have a big impact or an impact? Yes. Well, definitely changing the, fault, the default is sort of how researchers talk about it. It yeah. does have an impact. Um, and that's been shown in a variety of settings. Um, you know, so like McDonald's, for example, they changed the default from French fries and soda to this sort of <laughs> the Happy Meal. It comes with like a half French fries, half apples. So it was a little bit of a compromise, I guess. But we did do a study showing that certainly the amount of apples that kids were getting increased when they made that change because, you know, most people go with the default. So all of those kids were at least getting some apples. All right. Well, I think on that um, positive note, we're going to we're going to leave it there for today. But Marlene, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show and talking about this really important issue. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's right. I don't think our listeners have heard that sound for a while, so uh, love that it, that we're bringing it back. Um, and you guys know that it's time for our final segment, uh, where we feature an innovative and exciting food company. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce Kelly Sweetie, CEO of Sweet Earth Natural Foods, makers of Heat and Eat vegan and vegetarian convenience foods, um, based in California. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jenna. Um, so tell us, tell us about your company. Well, um, you know, as, as you started out, we're an award-winning, mission-driven, sustainable food company. We do operate out of California, the Salinas Valley, mm-hmm. which is otherwise known as the World Salad Bowl. Okay. And we're a player in driving the new food movement, which is really all about healthy, delicious, organic, and plant-based foods. Um, how, do you, how does a company define plant-based food? Does this mean vegan? Well, we are vegan and vegetarian. Um, 80% of our line is vegan. We do use a little bit of egg and cheese in um, a couple of our products to try to bring in some of the flexitarians. Um, our goal to be, you know, to be successful and to promote sustainable eating, we need to get more people into the products and into plant-based foods. Um, so your your tagline that I that I saw when doing a little research is exotic by nature, conscious by choice. What does this mean to you, and how does it reflect your company's mission? Oh, thanks for thanks for finding that. Um, we you know we love the idea of we use exotic foods and exotic spices um, as inspirations for our bowl and our burrito designs, and we think the consumer today. Feel they feel that they're exotic eaters and are interested in culinary adventures. Conscious by choice represents number one, sustainable food, and we think the way consumers are deciding to eat today. They're interested in food that's good for their body, but that's also good for their community and for the world. So that's where sustainability, animal rights, and health work their way into the food dialogue. So exotic food, but conscious choices, because we know that we can make a difference in the choices we make. Absolutely. And and um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the product types. Um, are there different categories of products that you make? And can you give us a couple of examples um, of some, you know, of your best sellers? Yeah, thank you. Um, a key base is we develop clean proteins. So clean pl- proteins are, are plant-based, sustainable, non-GMO, hormone-free, antibiotic-free, and, of course, cruelty-free proteins. And we use them um, as a base for our uh, frozen burrito line mm-hmm. and our entree bowl line. And we also have a line of breakfast sandwiches. 
Okay. So three, so three kind of product categories. Re- yeah. Yeah. Three categories. Um, I think breakfast, which is where our breakfast sandwich and where our frozen burri- a portion of our frozen burritos are, are particularly important and transformative category right now. As consumers are trying and recognizing they're eating too much sugar, mm-hmm. so looking for something savory, something healthy, something with vegetables and beans for breakfast is, I think, a more modern way of eating versus just pancakes and waffles and cereal. <laughs> and bacon. <laughs> and, yeah. And we have a benevolent bacon. <laughs> oh, I love that. I also yeah. never understood the, like, pancakes and bacon combination, but... Um... That's just me. It's <laughs> a double whammy. Yes. <laughs> you get your sodium and your sugar. <laughs> Breakfast of champions. Um, right. Who are some of your competitors in this space, and how do you differentiate yourself in the market? Yeah, the um, I think you're really seeing a changing of the guard in the frozen food section. The large companies of the past are starting to lose some space, the things like Dofers and Healthy Choice yeah. and Lean Cuisine, they're starting to lose space to these better-for-you kind of companies, of which I would say Amy's and Suki's and Saffron Road, Evol, and Sweet Earth. Um, we represent the new guard mm-hmm. um, with more, uh, I would say, a more modern type of food. And we differentiate ours by being, we really say, food first flavor forward. So we love bold, spicy, globally inspired flavors. Mm -hmm. And because we're here in the Salinas Valley, we're able to source so many of our ingredients locally. So we get that fresh vibrance. And we really believe in efficacious herbs and spices. And that Americans for too long have been dependent on sodium and sugar for flavor when there's this incredible wealth of spices and herbs out there. So we try to use those, and um, we use our clean proteins. And there's also a a lot of um, health benefits from some of these herbs and spices, right, that I think that not a lot of people are aware of. Absolutely. One of the ones, one of the spices that we probably use the most is turmeric. And as as you probably know, turmeric uh, is coming from Indian traditions, Mm -hmm. but um, it's noted for a bevy of medicinal benefits. Probably the most famous is its anti-inflammatory properties. So we use that and we use turmeric in three of our breakfast burritos, Mm. including our bestseller, the Big Sur. We use it in our Curry Tiger Southeast Asian, where turmeric is an important ingredient, you know, in most curry blends. We use it in our chana masala, our Moroccan tagine, um, and all of our breakfast sandwiches because we think, you know, anti-inflammatory herbs that have great color and these other benefits, um, you know, are really the kind of spices and things that we should be using in modern food. Food that stands the test of time, you know, so it's taking things that traditionally have worked and updating them for use today. Um, Well, now I'm officially hungry. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I have a a question for, I mean, obviously. Um, Another question that I wanted to ask you is um, you got your start in uh, working with some major companies, some major CPGs, including Pepsi. I'm wondering how your previous work helped to shape and inform what you're doing today. You know, um, it was absolutely essential for me being able to run the company I run today. The opportunity to get the functional expertise, whether it was operations, marketing, Mm -hmm. and sales, has really been a great launching pad. I learned so many things. I've made just a host of wonderful contacts that, you know, come in handy (laughs) as you go forward. So I think it's been a great training ground, and I would... I would propose to young people today, take advantage of those opportunities, learn, and then start your own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's great. Um, what, um, what are some of your favorite products? Well, I'm, I'm really crazy about this new global bowl line that we launched, and, and you could find it in Frozen. Um, 
just today I had the what we call our borderless enchilada. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely one of my favorites. Um, it's Mexican. We make our own um, enchilada sauce. It's it's uh, spicy and very authentic. Um, we use a corn tortilla, and so it's just got a real authentic, delicious Mexican flavor. Mm. Um, and General So's tofu. That's oh. that's my second favorite. Wow. Um, you know, General So everything is really popular now. Yeah. And we did the dish with brown rice, with um, a tofu, and then broccoli, and then just really wonderful, spicy, kind of sweet and sour sauce. Wow. I think that's one that's right now our best seller. So that yeah. would be one that um, I think any of your listeners, if they had the opportunity, those would be two I'd love to try. And I think they represent our food sensibility, which is high protein, high fiber, mm-hmm. but great flavor. Oh, well, um, like last but not least, and, and um, as a follow-up, where can our listeners find your products? Well, we're fortunate to really be lo- rolling this line out in a big way right now. Um, you can find us at Target. You can find us at Safeway, Lucky's, Harris Teeter out on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, Publix is just launching some of this line, and even Walmart. Wow. So um, we, we've got a, a great um, distribution profile so far, and I think it's only going to become stronger. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. Well, we're going to we're going to ra- have to wrap up for today, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about your exciting company. Thank you, Jenna. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. All right. I want to thank all of our guests today, Michael Roberts, Marlene Schwartz, and Kelly Sweetie for coming on the show. And of course, a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lenzet and music is by Tim Archer. Thanks to our engineer, the one and only Pierre Bienemy. Um, all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes um, and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat, Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.